the privilege of talking to you about the very special Sunday that we're having today. And uh, some of you probably read the email that went out this week where Pastor Gary Gonzalez officially announced his retirement from ministry and, and from Overlake Christian Church. And I know uh, for some of you, it was, it was like an incredible shock. Maybe it felt like it, it came so, sort of uh, sudden or from out of nowhere. But I do want to let you know that Gary has been so transparent with me over the last couple of years about how he and Georgia are looking forward to the future and kind of thinking and talking about what retirement might look like. And then for several months now, he's been li- sort of in um, working with me as well as the elders and the staff kind of talking about what the transition rollout looks like. And so just really, really thankful for for Gary. Uh, I want you to know what an honor it is today to sit under his teaching. Uh, Gary is not only um, an incredible partner in ministry here at Overlake with me, but he has been a true friend and in so many ways a mentor for me over these last nine years of ministry together. So, uh, so I just asked Gary, I said, hey, I, I want you to, to think he's had a 40-plus year ministry. I said, think about all the stuff that you've gone through in your ministry and, and really just challenge Overlake. Like, let us know sort of what's most near and dear to your heart. So Overlake, I just I want to let you know, it's, today it's a little bit like drinking from a fire hose, and I'm excited about that. But would you please, just with love and the graciousness that I already know exists within you, would you welcome Gary as he comes to lead us today? Thank you. Thank you. Maybe seated. I, I appreciate it. So kind, Mike. Thank you so much. Well, it, it's an honor to get to speak to you today, and uh, ho- hopefully it won't be overwhelming, but I do hope that, that you'll see my heart in this in terms of the challenge that I would like to offer to you today. You know, there's a saying in certainly the preaching side of ministry that every, every message you give is three messages. The one you prepared, the one you gave, and the one you wish you gave. So, you know, in that spirit, I, I love this chance that I get a second opportunity to speak. Uh, the first hour was great fun, and I have wonderful friends in that service, but now to be able to share with you again, and uh, hopefully uh, this message will, will be an encouragement to you as you think about it. Uh, we use the word retirement. Obviously, it's a little bit of code, and these, these days we have no intention of retiring in the sense of not serving Jesus. We think it's an incredible new season for us, and George and I are really excited to enter into that together, to travel more, to speak more, to do some other things, to do some writing, hopefully. And, uh, and so that's part of our vision for our future. But when I thought about today, I was reminded of the story I heard years ago about a guy who, who walks in the church a little late. Some of you have been there, right? Comes in the church a little late, so he sits down in the back. He's sitting there a moment. The pastor's preaching. And so after a while, he leans over to the guy next to him and says, how long has the pastor been preaching? The guy says, um, I think about 40 years. The guy says, good, he must just about be done. And, and so that's the spirit with which I approach this today. Um, it's been 40 years, so I'm just about done doing what I've done, but now doing it in a different setting. And so I'd appreciate your prayers for our family as we make that transition. But I want to say, first of all, Overlake, you are an amazing church. I mean, Pastor Mike's so gracious every week how he, he says he loves us. But, you know, that comes from a pure heart of someone who truly loves you. 
I've been in so many settings with Pastor Mike. And Mike, I love you. I, I respect you. You've mentored me probably more than I've mentored you. And uh, your transparency and honesty and, and just so many things about you. I, I hope you know what a special pastor you have. I hope you do. I, I, yes. I've been at this a long time, and Mike would be the first one to say he's not perfect, and, and we know that, right? We all know nobody's perfect. But Mike, you, you have such a genuineness about you. I just, uh, th- these have been the richest years to be able to serve alongside of you and to serve along the amazing pastoral and leadership team we have here. Again, Overlake, we're blessed. I think the blessing flows two ways. I think great churches produce great leaders. Great leaders produce great churches. You have a lot to contribute to this, and you have. So we have a wonderful staff that's committed to you and loves you. We have a board of elders that, that think the world of you and pray for you and serve you and do all they can to make this a better place. The Bible is clear. Leadership is never easy. And spiritual leadership is really difficult. In fact, when Paul writes in his letters about eldership, he says, it's a good thing for those of you that aspire to leadership. And the reason he said to spiritual leadership is because in his day to become an elder often could mean death. And even though it's not quite that dramatic at this point in time, let's face it, we know worldwide, and certainly changes even with our own culture, that spiritual leadership feels very different to me today than it did 40 years ago. We're living in a different culture. So Paul uh, talks about this many times. But in the book of Hebrews, there's an encouragement I want to leave with you before I get into the heart of the message. And it's from the book of, of Hebrews, and it's, it's an encouragement, and it's some advice to the church. It says this, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as ones who will one day give an account. Do this so their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be no benefit to you. And Overlake, I want to commend you for saying, I can't think of many times, maybe on one hand, in the years I've been here, that, that there's been a burden that's come from the congregation that was too heavy to bear. You're a gracious group of people. It's been an honor and pleasure to serve with you, and uh, I look forward to what God's going to continue to do in the days to come. Well, people sometimes ask me about my, my role, and my role here, part of it centers on spiritual formation, which has to do with helping people become uh, more like Jesus in the course of their spiritual journey. And it comes from a position as a co-journeyer. I, I don't in any way claim to have arrived, but I've been on the journey. And as a friend of mine is fond of saying, it's not how long you've been on the journey, but how far down the road you've gone. And I agree with that. But I've walked with Jesus for a long time, and there's nothing that gives me more delight than spending time with people. And this happened to me again last week. It happens all the time. I'll have a a counseling or mentoring session with someone, and they'll always say, oh, I'm so sorry I've taken your time, to which I always say, that's why I exist. That's why I exist. That's why any true pastor exists. We want to spend time with you. We want to build into your life. Paul writes words in Ephesians 4 that, that I think are in my view, a summary of this whole spiritual formation idea and what God's desire is for you as a church, for you as a people, for us as individuals. He says this, So Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, now watch some of these action verbs, to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up and we all reach unity in the faith 
and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, note that, become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal, that we would attain the full measure of what Jesus has for us. Then he says this, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Those verses mean so much to me. And I hope in many ways they characterize my ministry, at least my desire, because that's the goal is for us to become spiritually mature in Christ. Now, there's a word that entered the vocabulary in a different form recently. It's, it's the word adulting. Have you heard this word? Adulting. The Urban Dictionary defines it like this. Adulting is to grow up, uh, to, do, to do grown-up things and hold responsibilities. To do grown-up things and hold responsibilities. Back when I was a kid, that's sort of what you were expected to do. Just sort of naturally to become an adult. But, but today, that's prolonged for a lot of people. Certainly, um, education, a lot of other things uh, in our culture have prolonged this. And if you haven't noticed, there's another factor affluence prolongs adolescence. This is true in every culture, right? The less affluent a culture, the sooner you are forced into an adult world. And it's kind of a funny word. There have been movies made about it, failure to launch, other, other kinds of things that talk about the difficulty of some generations of moving into full adulthood and taking on responsibilities. But it's not funny when applied to the spiritual realm. It has such huge implications. See, in the spiritual realm, the material always is a sign pointing to the spiritual. And so when you see miracles, you see other things that happen that are dramatic, they're always to point to something greater than that action. It's not to say that action isn't incredible. Any miracle would be incredible. But it's what it points to that has greater significance. You've heard the analogy, perhaps, of you take a child and they're three years old and, and you say, here's a Hershey chocolate bar and here's a $1,000 bill. Choose one of them. The, the tendency, not always, but the tendency is to take the chocolate bar or the box the new toy came in that you spent so much money on. They play with the box, right? We've all had that experience. Why? Because at that age, $1,000 is temporarily beyond their comprehension. They don't understand the value. This same principle holds true spiritually. As you journey through Scripture, and this is a major hermeneutical point or way of interpreting the Bible, is that God operates on what's called progressive revelation. Pat mentioned it last week. And that is God reveals more of himself to us over time. As we're ready to receive it, God pours out more of the truth about who he is. In our maturity, we can grasp greater complexity. That's the goal. And like the parenting process, as we become more mature, God is able to give us more of himself. So when you look in the Old Testament, God often, like parenting a child, mentors his people by physical blessing. They can see and they can understand. And so Abraham, or Abram when he starts out, grows to be rich. Job, who went through so many pains and trials along with his wife, Mrs. Job, after all the end of the tragedies they face, God blesses them again. He doubles what they had before, and he blesses them with 10 more children. Solomon, who 
begins with great faithfulness to the Lord, becomes one of the richest rulers of all times. And so you see God pouring out material blessing in the Old Testament. But then you get to the New Testament, and there is an inflection point. There's a transition. Jesus raises all of life and eternity's stakes. Sermon on the Mount, for example. He focuses first and foremost on soul care and spiritual well-being. I have a friend who studied the Gospels for a long time, and he looked at the different characters Jesus encountered, and he came to the conclusion that roughly based on percentages, nine out of ten people that came to Jesus came for physical healing or some kind of material healing or relationship. And he goes on to suggest then that Jesus takes people from where they are to where he was going. That's always the way he works. He takes us from what we believe our need is to what the real need is. It's not that material wealth or physical health are unimportant. They're very important. It's just that we need to remember that we're all mortal. George Bernard Shaw, who was no friend of Christianity, a famous writer, said this. He said, the statistics are monotonously the same. One out of one people die. I mean, you'd expect to hear that from a preacher, but you wouldn't expect to hear that from an agnostic. But he understood the truth that, that life has eternal stakes. And this is one of the reasons why the prosperity gospel is such a failure. The idea that if you have enough faith, enough positive mental attitude, only good things will come your way. That only material blessings and wealth and even physical healing on occasion, these are the ways God will always bless you. The problem is that's not true. I mean, C.S. Lewis said of Lazarus, he was the unfor most unfortunate of men. He had to die twice. At the end of the day, you see, it comes down to spirituality in our relationship with Christ. The problem with the prosperity gospel is it puts the emphasis on the wrong syllable. And that makes all the difference in the world. Thank you. I thought about that one. The core of what I want to say to you is this. So, so hear me on this point. A child-level faith is incapable of sustaining your belief system in an adult world. Let me say it one more time. A child-level faith is incapable of sustaining you in an adult world. I saw this all the time through the years as a pastor. People that start out well, they're kids, they're in Sunday school, they're growing, and then they stop growing and they become adults. They face the challenges of the world. They're questioned in their faith. They're challenged in their belief system. And because they have a child-level faith, it doesn't sustain them in an adult world. Questions come, they get confused, they lose their way, and they think what they believed was a lie when in fact it was the truth. Notice what I didn't say. I didn't say a childlike faith. I said a child-level faith. A childlike faith is a beautiful, pure thing. And Jesus said all of us should always be childlike in our response to the Father, a level of trust that's built on the reality of who God is, as opposed to a child-level faith that is trusting but often naive. And so when it's challenged, it doesn't sustain itself. When we, our daughter was young, Giselle was three or four years old, like every parent that follows Jesus, we wanted to, her to grow up in a context where she knew the Lord, and at her age, we tried to communicate in ways she would understand, and so one of those places is always the, the kitchen table, the dining room table, when you have a meal, and, and we would want her to bow her head and close her eyes, and you know, the whole uh, piece about prayer, about being honoring before you receive a meal. Well, one day, my brother came to visit us, one of my brothers, he's a prankster, kind of a kid magnet, 
so Giselle was enamored by him, and we were sitting at the dinner table, and he decided to take the lead. And so he said, Giselle, we're going to pray, and I want you to pray. So follow what I'm going to do. Bow your head, close your eyes, and open your mouth. And I'll never forget that moment because I thought, there's a sort of beauty about that, but it's a naive beauty. It's, it's, a, it's a trust, but there's a gullibility there at that level in her understanding. And so she needed to step into an adult-level faith. And in Galatians 4, 19, one of the great passages on spiritual maturity, Paul writes and he says, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth. Think about that. The pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That was Paul's heart, that he ached over people that he saw in churches that somehow stopped growing in their faith. Now, I don't personally know any men that truly understand the pains of childbirth, but I suspect Paul witnessed childbirth on more than one occasion, and he understood it was painful. Can I get an amen, ladies? It's painful. Amen. Yeah. I think what he's saying, though, is this, that there are certain biblical truths that need to be embraced. Failure to embrace these truths will stifle your spirituality. And so that's what I want to focus on this morning. I want to talk about five truths. I could give you 500 maybe, but I'm going to give you five. Five that I think are the most important that will help pave the way for you to become a spiritually adult or to continue in that process of growing in your faith. The first one is this. Your spiritual vitality is in your hands. Your spiritual vitality is in your hands. I can't emphasize that enough. I've often through the years uh, when I've sat with church leaders, board members, I've asked this question, and it's a great question, I think. How is it that you became the spiritually mature person you are? And the reason I ask that question is because when I look at these people, they come from wildly diverse backgrounds, and yet as we sit at that table, regardless of whether they're from uh, California or Minnesota or Alabama, people at a table, whether they're from a non-denominational church, a certain denominational church, or some other kind of background or non-background, somehow they ended up at that table because of a level of spiritual maturity. Some came from irreligious homes, others from homes where Jesus is honored, still others from backgrounds of abuse or addiction, yet all of them, without a singular pattern, came to know and love Jesus. You see, the only explanation for that is they learned how to spiritually mature and to grow, to become spiritually an adult. We've been walking this road in our family with our daughter for now a number of years as she's into her early 20s. And I think any parent whose child is walking with the Lord, and I know that's not always true, and we know every child makes choices along the way, so don't hear this in the wrong way if right now maybe you're walking through some challenges with your child. We all do. But there's nothing like seeing a child, if you're a Christ follower, begin to own their own faith. You know, it's been said kids don't go to college and lose their faith. They go to college and lose someone else's faith. Somewhere along the line, you pray that they would own them. One of my fondest memories growing up, I knew at age 12 I was called to be a pastor. I feel really fortunate that I knew so early what uh, that vocational and life calling was. But I remember when I was leaving for seminary, there was a senior saint in the church, and she stood up one day before the congregation, this well-respected, mature woman, and she read these verses over me from Paul's words, his blessing to young Timothy. He said, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and what you've become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. That's so important. 
and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. My parents ultimately came to faith, but to think I had wise, godly mentors that poured into my life at a young age, what a rich legacy. You're so blessed to be here. If you have your kids in kid town or in middle school or our student ministries, man, you're fortunate. We so benefited from it with our family. Second truth to lean into, this is a big one. This is the one we often wrestle with. It's this, God owns it all. God owns it all. This maybe is the toughest one to convince people of. You see, we begin our spiritual journey. We're not mature enough at the beginning to understand this principle. There's no way, very rarely. From the moment we're born into this world, uh, we're like the seagulls in Finding Nemo. Mine, mine, mine. You know, it's just, it's all about us, right? It's the way we're inclined. It's the way we're oriented. It's our default mechanism. So when I came to faith at age eight, you know, I heard about stewardship and giving and how my life belonged to God in totality. Then later as a young pastor, I knew what it was like to preach those messages on giving and, and know that, yes, I gave, but it, it, it didn't come out of a, a joyful heart many times. A lot of times it was kind of a grudging, like, I'm the pastor, I need to do this kind of thing. I'm just being honest. But as I matured, and fortunately this happened relatively soon after uh, in my ministry, I began to understand that that God did own it all. And it began to reshape the way I thought about my life and myself. I mean, one thing today reminds you of, some, of, some people have come to me and said, well, you're leaving, I didn't expect that. Or didn't. But you know, these days always come in life, don't they? These days come, transitions come. They're, they're natural and they're normal and they're to be expected. In the same way, as you think about the subject of giving, one day all of it's going to go back. Whatever we've accumulated, yeah, we can pass it on to our children or we can, we can give through a foundation, and those are good and wonderful and noble things. But what we have to understand is God has designed us to be stewards of all he's given to us because he owns it all. He's the owner. We're the managers. So whether it's your financial well-being, whether it's your relational wealth, Whatever it is in your life, the car you drive, God has endowed you with that and entrusted you with that to be a wise steward. And the Bible says, one day we'll all give an account. I shared this story some years ago, but I want to share it again. At one time, I was living in Southern California, living in a condominium, and uh, I went away for a ski weekend with some friends, and I came home, and a string of condominiums had been robbed. Mine was one that had been robbed. And later that week, they came out with what they called the police blotter in the newspaper, which I think is a strange idea, but they had a listing of, of everything that was stolen. They listed the, the neighbor's home address and then what was stolen. So such and such an address, $5,000 in jewelry stolen. The next address, $3,000 watch stolen. It went on like that. It got to my condominium and my address, and it said, stolen, nothing. So I didn't have anything. Uh, made me feel good. It, it reminded me of a book, uh, our chapter in a book by A.W. Tozer, the great spiritual mystic. It's called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. So they couldn't take it away. But that was this powerful reminder to me that God owns it all. Thieves break in and steal. Moths corrupt. You know, the Bible talks about that. And so in this idea of progressive revelation and God teaching us more and more, uh, let's face it, most of us don't rub our hands together with glee and say, oh, great, we're going to get another series on financial stewardship or on giving. Not many of us do that. We fear that such a, such a message might challenge us and end up costing us too much. It's a great message on stewardship. We fear it. 
Ron Blue, though, who is a financial guru and an estate planning expert, says this. Generosity is an attitude, and when you have it, it impacts every area of your life. That's the principle. What we do with our giving is just a reflection of a recognition, hopefully one day as a mature Christ follower, that it's generosity that God is going after, not just with money, not even only with relationships, but with something that flows out of our life, with people we meet and people we encounter along the way, that we understand that giving has a value because it helps others. It's a way in which we as an affluent nation are able to do things and respond to tragedies in ways that few cultures are able to do. Generosity feels good too. You know, that's one of the side benefits. God always gets a benefit. Even though he blesses us and he blesses us to bless others, we always benefit in the process. Have you noticed when you're generous, you feel better about yourself? People give for lots of motives, but it's like an endorphin in our brain, if not our, in our heart, if not our brain, that makes us feel good toward others. And prayer, by the way, works the same way. Try praying for someone you don't like and watch God change your heart. Generosity, though, is also God-blessed. You know, the Bible is very straightforward. It says God loves a cheerful giver, and the Bible does promise that God will bless us when we give generously. It doesn't mean he's going to bless us materially in the way that we might expect a tangible result, though sometimes he does. He often blesses us in the richness of relationships or in impact that we have. There was a, a fellow, I love history, and I, I was reminded this week of R.G. Uh, of Letourneau. He was famous for building earth-moving equipment, and he built these massive machines that, that moved the earth. And he was a committed Christ follower, and he was very generous. And in fact, uh, he was so generous, even though he became super rich, he gave 90% of his income to the Lord's work and kept 10%. He's the one who famously said, I shovel money out, God shovels it back, but God has a bigger shovel. I know some of you are thinking, well, one day if I'm rich like R.G. Letourneau, I'll give a lot of money. But I'll tell you, I've looked at the statistics for like four decades, and uh, giving percentages don't go up with affluence. They tend to go down. So wherever you are, start where you are. Lean into that. The body of Christ here benefits. We benefit from being here because of the generosity of others and that we stood on the shoulders of others. The Bible's very clear. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. There's a third truth I want to leave with you, and that is this. Simply put, you're a saint and not a sinner. If you're, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you put your faith in him, if you're trusting in him for your eternal life, then you're a saint, according to the Bible, not a sinner. There's a lot of confusion about this because the word saint and sinner have, let's face it, there's been a lot of controversy around both words. I was reminded of a story uh, as I was thinking about this message about a, a, a mother who had two kids. They were home one day. They were young kids. Like a lot of kids, they got on each other's nerves, but even more, they got on the mother's nerves. And so, and so mom came up with an idea. She said, you're driving me crazy. Go make up a game. Go play somewhere. It was pouring rain outside, and they were in the house. So she was frustrated. She sent them downstairs to the family room. So they went downstairs to the family room, and things were quiet for a while. Then all of a sudden, she heard this plaintive voice and this knocking sound, let me in, let me in. So she runs downstairs. She sees her older son. He's got his nose pressed against the window pane. He's fiendishly smiling. His sister is outside pounding on the door. She's soaking wet. The mother says, I told you to play a game together. He said, we are, Mom. We're playing Noah's Ark, and she's a sinner. 
And some of us think about sin that way, don't we? The people out there that should be punished because they're so bad. How can God love that person? How could God forgive that person for what they did? That person's a sinner. In fact, the New Testament, there's a technical Greek term, and, and it shows up in the expression, tax collectors and sinners. Because that culture viewed certain people as too far removed from God and irredeemable. But you know, the fact of the matter is, all of us, at some point in our life, walk in a pathway of sin. That is, our life is characterized by our sin nature. And so the Bible says in Romans 3.23, words that should strike all of us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It also says all of us stand in need of God's grace, Romans 6.23. You know, the most common word in the New Testament for the word sin, it's the word hamartia, it's a Greek word, and it means to fall short or to miss the mark. But there are other words like being twisted and perverted. So there are all kinds of ways we can be sinners. But perhaps the most powerful way is sin yields a spiritual blindness where people don't acknowledge their sin. You can read about it in Romans 1. It talks about becoming so blinded that we don't see the extent of our sin. And I would say to you, Overlake, and I would just remind myself as I say this, that our primary function, even though we, we do many things, is to help people understand that there is a God who loves them, a Jesus who died on the cross to save them from their sins, was raised from the dead, and that there is eternal hope and eternal life because of that. That's the core of our message. So I want to ask the question this morning, where are you in your spiritual walk? You see, the word saint is often misunderstood as well. It's often used to think, well, to be a saint, you've got to have perform two documentable miracles and be dead for at least 100 years. But, but that's not what the Bible says about being a saint. In fact, Paul writes in his letters to the saints at Corinth, to the, to the sanctified in Rome, to the saints at Ephesus. You see, he calls people of God saints. Why? Because the word saint means to be set apart for holy purpose. And I want all of you to be challenged to think about this this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus, God has a call on your life. It's bigger than what you do for a living. Now, all of us are given platforms. Some of us have a variety of platforms. You may be a leader in an organization. You might be a, a school teacher in a school system. You might be a mom or a dad who's parenting from home. You have a platform or many platforms, and that is not your identity. You express your identity, the personhood of Christ in your life, in the way you live your life. That's where your calling lies in how you show up in your spirituality from the platform that God has given you. So you can be in any walk of life. There's nothing super sacred about being a pastor, although it's a great honor. The reality is we all have platforms. You move in worlds that Pastor Mike, myself, and others will never walk in those worlds. And God has called you to that place for a reason. Never forget that. A fourth truth, spiritual growth is a process, not an event. Now, that's a bitter pill for some people. There are just people that are wired that they want things to be done once and for all. They don't like process. They want only to have arrived. You know people like that? Maybe you're like that. When I first started out in ministry, there were a series of books that came out. They all had like the same title. And it was always like this, Toward a Biblical Theology or Toward a Theology of Education. And a pastor friend came to me and he lamented, I hate books with the word toward in the title. And his reason was this. 
He wanted digestible facts and subtle convictions. The thought that there were gray areas drove him crazy. He wanted to know that he knew that he knew. Well, I'm telling you, after lots of years of walking with Jesus, life isn't like that. Life is messy. Ministry is messy. People are messy. And if you don't understand that, you'll be frustrated in your faith. You'll be hard on yourself because you'll become guilt-ridden with what you don't live up to. You'll be hard on others. But what I love so much about serving at Overlake, and this is where Pastor Mike, Pastor Dan, so many on the team, are, they've been a great example and encouragement to me, is to see how willing we are, and you as a body of believers, to live in the messy middle. Oh, we live there, friends. Not everybody likes it. I get that. But living in the messy middle is a place where we take risks. We, we take on commitments like Eastside Academy. We take on things like orphan care and adoption. We take on things like safe parking. We do messy things where there's risk, but we calculate the risk. But Jesus calls us in the risk. I love one of our mottos here is, Overlake is a safe place to live dangerously. That's a great motto. It's a great mantra. You see, in the New Testament, the word mature doesn't mean perfect. The word mature means complete. And so, as you look at your own life, as we mature in life, the goal is for us to become complete. doesn't mean we won't make mistakes. One of my mentors used to say this. I love this line. God is more interested in your direction than your perfection. One day you'll be made perfect. The Bible says your sanctification will be fully completed. You'll be glorified. But in this world, we will always be on a journey. But it's a journey of growth. And as mature followers of Jesus, we ought to look different than we did when we had a childlike, child-level faith. The last truth I want to leave with you is simply this. You will leave a legacy. Every one of us will leave a legacy. I almost didn't want to talk about this point this morning because I think the subject of legacy has been so written about and talked about that it's become white noise. We don't hear its importance anymore. We lose sight of the fact that legacies are only as meaningful as our belief in their importance. And if we don't, if we don't think about ourselves as leaving a legacy that, that others will either build on or will be dissatisfied or disappointed because of our legacy, um, then, then we, we don't have the impact that God wants us to have. Even more troubling, perhaps, or sobering is the fact that most of us, our legacy ultimately will be boiled down to a single sentence. If you want to know more about that, I'll be happy to give you some examples afterwards, personally, about great people whose life was boiled down to a sentence. That's the way you remember them, one sentence. The same will be true of you and me. There's going to be a headline or a soundbite that characterizes the kind of person, the kind of Christ follower, the kind of husband or wife or child or you name it that we were. I, I was blessed educationally many times along the way. One of my richest blessings was uh, having an opportunity on a couple of occasions to sit under the teaching and mentorship of uh, a well-known uh, scholar in, in, in evangelical circles named Vernon Grounds. For years, 25 years almost, he was a president of Denver Seminary and a brilliant man, a great thinker, great writer, humorous. Uh, he, he's a guy that even years after he left the school, he would write personal birthday cards to all the students he had. I mean, he was just that kind of a person. He was a person that if you would, if you would be sitting with him or talking with him, you would think you were the only person in the conversation. I mean, what a gift to have that feeling that nobody else in the world mattered in that moment but you. He was like that. In one of his books called Radical Commitment, where he talks about discipleship, he tells a story about Thomas Carlyle, the famous 
satirical writer, author, well-known back uh, some time ago, back 100 plus years ago. Carlyle married his sweetheart, whom he dearly loved. But like a lot of us who enter into these relationships, life is busy, life is crazy, stuff crashes in on us. And I think even as I say these words, every husband, every wife, everyone in a significant relationship, you begin to feel the weight of the times you've blown it and, gee, I've not been as sensitive. Well, Carlisle was no different. He and his wife, something like 9,000 letters of correspondence between them over the course of a lifetime. Some of them filled with love, many of them fiery and angry. Their, their relationship was definitely the two porcupines that they wanted to draw closer, but when they did, they stuck each other with their quills and pulled apart. Well, Carlisle's wife was treated by him, who was a prolific writer. That's where his focus was. She was also a writer who, because of that era when women didn't have much platform, didn't really ever exercise her gift. Sad. But Carlisle was into his writing career, and he began to treat his wife as one of his employees. And this went on for so many years as their marriage ran hot and cold, and toward the end, maybe much colder. Later in life, she was struck with terminal cancer. She was bedridden for about a year and then died suddenly. You know, it's funny, sick a long time, but still unexpected when a life is taken from us. It's just the way it is. This case was no different. His wife died unexpectedly, suddenly. After her funeral, Carlisle went back to his house, empty house. Now he's walking around, he's wandering, he's grieving, he's recalling his wife and Eventually, he makes his way up the stairs to her bedroom and sits down on a chair beside her bed, and next to her bed is a, is a table, and on that table is her diary, something he would never read when she was alive, would never consider it, but now that she was dead, he picked it up like any of us would out of curiosity and just began to thumb through the pages. As he thumbed through those pages, one entry caught his eye. It went like this. Yesterday, he spent an hour with me, and it was like being in heaven. I love him so much. He turned a few more pages and read, I listened all day to hear his steps in the hall, but it's late now. I, I guess he won't come to see me. He read a few more entries, then he threw the diary down. He ran back to the cemetery in the rain, fell on her grave, crying out, if only I had known, if only I had known. And to me, the tragedy in that story is to come to the end of one's life and to say, if only I had known when we did know. I mean, if Jesus had a diary and it was laying beside his bedstand and we saw it, would he say that about us? I hope they would come today to talk to me. I hope they would spend moments with me, but they never made it. They never came. You see, all these earthly relationships, including marriage, is all about a picture of Christ in the church. And so the brokenness in Carlisle's relationship, which all of us experience as humans at some level, all too often is a picture of our relationship to Jesus. But I would say to you this morning in closing, regardless of where you're at in your spiritual journey, don't be discouraged. The beautiful thing about biblical Christianity is there is always hope. Jesus always gives hope. You might be here this morning and you're doing great, and God bless you. Keep walking that journey. Others of you, many of you perhaps, have stumbled along the way, and, and you've not kept up with your own spiritual growth, and you know that. You can start again. Others of you, you've not even gotten on this journey, but maybe today has opened your eyes because, you know, there are only three things a person can believe in. One is tradition. 
Many religions are built upon the tradition and people follow the tradition. The other one, which is much more common in the Western world today, is our intellect and our reason. We are very empirical and scientific in our approach. If I can put it in a test tube and reproduce it, I can believe it. But let's face it, the thing about faith is faith is sight without actually physically seeing in the moment. And that's why we have the word of God. That's why Jesus came and that's why we have the Bible is God chose to reveal himself very specifically to us. And the way he revealed himself is by saying, I'm a God of love, I care for you, but you have a decision to make. It's a spiritual decision. You could choose to follow me or not. But I want you to know that today, if, if you pray and you receive Jesus into your life or if you prayed that prayer at some time, God promises he'll come into your life. He'll forgive your sins and yes, you'll still sin, but you'll be a saint. And he'll be forever walking that journey with you and he'll be as available as you want him to be. That's the good news of the gospel. It's the most profound message we have to speak. So regardless of where you're at, know that God loves you and God's making a way for you. And no longer can you say, if only I had known, because like all of us in this room, we do know. One year from now, next September, Overlake Christian Church turns 50 years old. Yeah. What? <laughs> 50 is a great age. I remember it well. The beauty about 50 is plenty of history, but a lot more future. And Overlake, it's been the highest honor to be on this journey with you and uh, with Pastor Mike and with the team here. I thank God for you. I believe in you. And I honestly believe the best is yet to come. Love your pastor. Love your leaders. Love one another. Become all that you can be in Christ, spiritually adult together. So this body becomes what it already is becoming, a beautiful example of what it means to be fully mature in Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, I do love this body of believers and those that are here this morning that are, that are still kicking the tires trying to figure this whole thing out. God, I can't think of a better message to be able to say to people than unconditionally you love us, all you ask for is our open-heartedness to receive you with thankfulness and gratitude to just reach out to you and say, thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for me through Jesus, for his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Father, I pray your rich blessing upon Overlake. I pray, Lord, that the next 50 years will be far beyond. You're the God who does so much more than we ever expect. And I can't wait to see what you're going to do through this great group of people. For your kingdom's sake, here and around the world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Amen.